Hello again, everybody, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and thank you so much for joining us this week. We are extremely blessed and excited to have Dr. Shannon D. Williams uh, from Villanova University with us today as our guest. She is a professor of history there at uh, Villanova University, um, and uh, and we're just great to uh, and very excited to have her on the podcast. So, Shannon, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to start a little bit. You've uh, obviously come to uh, be known, I think, um, especially by Catholic educators and those uh, within the Catholic faith is writing a lot about black history and especially in the times that we've um, been going through over the last few difficult months. But I just want to start with asking a little bit about your background and your academic uh, kind of career and, uh, and how you found yourself uh, ending up at Villanova in your current role. Thank you. Uh, you know, my background is similar to, you know, many uh, people who are interested in Black Catholic history. We are Black Catholics. I am Catholic. I was born into the church, baptized as an infant um, and raised, uh, and I am still a practicing Catholic. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee and attended uh, and was a member of a parish um, right outside of Memphis in Bartlett, Tennessee. Um, but my journey to becoming, I think, a historian of the Black Catholic experience was not intentional. I did my undergraduate work at Agnes Scott College and got a BA in history, then went on to get an MA in African-American studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And then I earned my PhD in history from Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Uh, but by the time that I entered graduate school at, at Rutgers and really at Wisconsin as well, I really had no intention of pursuing a topic in Black Catholic history. I didn't know much about the topic. I'm outside of my family's own story and specifically my mother's journey into the church, which made my own journey possible. Uh, my mother was educated in the Black Catholic schools of Savannah, Georgia, and then at the age of seven, converted uh, to Catholicism and my Protestant grandparents let her do so, do so. And so that is the story of my journey. My mother became Catholic, was educated in Catholic schools all of her life. And in fact, my mother is in the first class of women graduates at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and so I grew up in a household uh, where, in a family where everyone reminded me of that fact, you know, your mother was a pioneer um, and everyone talked about it except my mother. And I never really understood why. Um, obviously the, the plight of the pioneer is never easy, um, but my mother is devout. And so I didn't know much more about the church. And so I didn't necessarily have any interest in understanding sort of black Catholic history because I didn't think there would be much of it um, because in my own parish, I was, we were one of two families. Um, so I just didn't know as much um, as I probably should have known about Black Catholic history. Um, and at the time of entering graduate school, I was actually sort of considering leaving the church. And so my journey to my research was really uh, an intervention of God. It was providential serendipity, I would say. I was looking for a topic for a seminar, and I stumbled upon a newspaper article from 1968 announcing the formation of the National Black Sisters Conference, which was an organization of Black sisters um, that had come together in wake of the assassination of, the doctor, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, who were committed to rooting out and eliminating racism in every facet of the church and also wider society. So that's sort of how I came to um, research in Black Catholic history because I didn't, had never seen Black nuns before. I didn't know any of that history, and I was very much intrigued to learn more, which has really brought me to where I am today. I am the Albert LePage Assistant Professor of History at Villanova University, 
um, and I am finishing up my first book on the history of Black Catholic nuns in the United States. It'll be the first uh, historical survey of these women, um, and it will look at their role in the fight against, uh, in the fight for racial and educational justice within the church and wider American society. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Chimamanda Adichie. She's a Nigerian author, yes. and she has a great YouTube uh, video that you might have seen about the single story and the danger right. of the single story. And hearing you describe, you know, kind of your upbringing in the church and your mom's conversion, and uh, but it just sounds like you only heard a single story, and so you could never even imagine that there were other options, that there were black nuns or that there was another part of the church. And I, it just speaks so powerfully to um, not only relying on a single story in, in any case in terms of, of how we get our information. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we've had the COVID-19 crisis and, uh, and you had an article in America magazine on Sister Mary Anthony Duchemin. I want to get her name right. Um, uh-huh. uh, of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, which is an all-black order of nuns. And you parallel her, you don't really parallel, but you talk about her work during uh, the cholera epidemic in Baltimore and, uh, and make some comparisons to, um, to our current crisis with COVID. Speak a little bit about Sister Mary Anthony and what she did specifically during uh, the cholera epidemic in Baltimore and who she actually helped and worked with. Yes, so um, part of my own research, what I've come to realize very quickly or what I began to realize very quickly when I began uh, researching the lives and labors of black Catholic nuns was that it was almost impossible to sort of tell their stories without confronting some very difficult truths about the church, um, whether it be its role in sort of slaveholding and segregation. And so I began to collect these stories and what I realized um, sort of stories such as Sister Mary Anthony Beachman um, is that part of the reason why they are so inaccessible to us is because they force us to confront um, these very uneasy truths about um, the American Catholic experience, specifically that the church was never an innocent bystander um, in its story of colonialism, slavery, segregation. And so her story is very interesting. In 1832, uh, a cholera epidemic sort of sweeps the world, actually, sort of makes its way into the Americas. Um, and is in Baltimore, and it is devastating the community, and particularly um, a poor people, um, and especially the African-American community who are experiencing greater rates of death as a result of the epidemic. And so at that moment, there is a need, great need for uh, volunteers to attend to the sick and the ailing. Um, in the case of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, um, which were founded in Baltimore in 1828, um, who were, in fact, the modern world's first community of sisters really open to women of African descent. Although they are a teaching order, they are called to service, um, and they are willing to do so um, to serve communities. And in the case of Sister Mary Anthony Duchman, um, she is a woman who has immigrated, um, like many of the Oblate foundresses, from Haiti, or from what is going to become Haiti, um, as a result of the revolution, the rebellion, slave re rebellion and revolution that's taking place. She herself had been trained as a private nurse and had been a private nurse for many of the prominent families in Baltimore. And so when the Archbishop, uh, James Whitfield of Baltimore, um, becomes ill with cholera, she is called by the Archbishop staff to come and attend to him personally um, because of her great reputation as a nurse to some of the um, elite families of Baltimore. And she serves the bishop um, 
he re- recovers. She returns with her. Uh, she then she returns from the bishop's house to join her uh, community members who are working at the city's almshouse um, to serve other people who are suffering um, from the disease. And she's actually called back to the archbishop's home after one of his servants also becomes ill. Now, when she is called back the second time, she herself becomes ill and passes on. And so it is an important story for us because it gives us a clear sense of the dedication of these women of color, sisters of color, who are living um, in a slave society and in a slaveholding church in which the lives, um, it's a slaveholding society and a slaveholding church in which the labor of Black people is invaluable, but that, and I, but it's also a space in which their lives and their souls really don't matter all that much um, when we think about it. And certainly, the story of what happens afterward um, helps us to get begin to see the church's own commitments um, to these systems of inequality at that particular moment. So after the cholera epidemic sort of subsides, um, the community sort of celebrates the Sisters of Charity who themselves um, had also served valiantly um, um, victims of cholera. But the Oblate Sisters of Providence are written out of most of these public pronouncements. Only one city officials acknowledges the work that they had done. Also in the aftermath, um, we know that uh, the sisters, um, in the case of Sister Mary Anthony Duchemin, she is included in a list uh, published by the archdiocese noting the sisters who pass on but in sort of a standard practice of the time, they only sort of identify her by her first name, whereas um, her white counterparts who also passed on were identified identified by their first and last names. And then even sort of thinking about, um, also thinking about what happens with the community, even after Archbishop Winfield passes on in his will, um, he leaves the Oblate Sisters of Providence um, sort of the smallest of the inheritance, whereas giving many of the sister, other sisters who were themselves slaveholders um, significantly large um, um, inheritance behind to be able to support their ministries. And so for me, it's just an important story to think about how Black sisters living in this church, living in this society, still believed in the core teachings of the church. Um, and in the face of discrimination, um, still called upon the church to uphold those teachings. Um, and it's, I think it's an important story for us um, to consider and to think about always. So that's such a powerful story uh, and obviously does have parallels uh, to today. Um, well, let's maybe talk about that first. The parallels to today and especially in terms of you talked about the cholera epidemic really impacting the poor communities, especially and especially the black community. Um, we're seeing the same thing with COVID-19 um, and we've seen it with other types of uh, disease and, and epidemic in healthcare. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but, but just speak to that in terms of um, some of the impacts that we've seen in our modern times and how those impacts continue to uh, be felt most, uh, most severely by those who are either poor or, um, or black or, or, or brown. Um, right. Um, part of the reason why I felt compelled to write that article uh, was in response to an article that appeared in the New York Times that was calling upon people to, you know, exercise the, um, 
the universal approach that were that was taken by Catholic sisters um, sort of during the flu the Spanish flu epidemic um, of the early 20th century. And I was very uneasy about the comparison because it ignored um, it sort of ignored the fact that during that particular epidemic, there weren't as many or there weren't significant disparities um, in terms of racial outcomes. That in fact, we know that um, African American nurses had mobilized in their communities and were able to sort of keep African American numbers um, sort of uh, keep actually deaths uh, very fairly low uh, in comparison to some of their counterparts. And so I thought what was very significant about this moment and why I thought the cholera epidemic of 1832 was the better comparison was because this is 1832, this is a slave society. So, but the free and the enslaved black communities are suffering um, in very similar ways, um, in part because of their own um, place within sort of this highly stratified, highly racially stratified system of slavery. And even for African-Americans who were free, finding themselves relegated to substandard housing, um, oftentimes having to sort of live um, with multiple members, sort of increasing rates. And so I thought that was the better parallel. But what this particular moment has demonstrated to us has been what African-American activists and healthcare professionals who are concerned about race and racism in the medical field have been telling us for decades that structural racism is deadly for people. Um, in our contemporary epidemic, we know that African-Americans are suffering some of the highest rates of death from coronavirus. Um, they are three times more likely than their white counterparts to contract the virus and two times more likely, and this is on a national level, to pass away from the, uh, from the virus. And then if we can move into certain locales, those numbers are even higher. Now, some of that is rooted in the fact, of the fact, uh, rooted in the fact that many African-Americans work in jobs that do not allow them to telecommute, that they are still having to go to work. Um, if they're in many major cities, they are represented in the higher rates of individuals who use public transportation. Um, also, when we're thinking about housing and thinking about sort of the history of racial segregation and housing, um, where in many African-American communities may be living in overcrowded conditions or even within homes, we know that many African-Americans live in multi-generational um, households where maybe a grandparent or others are there. Um, and on top of that, there is a lack of access to quality and affordable health care. Um, in this moment, um, what we are recognizing, or certainly what the pandemic is magnifying for us, are these inequities that have always existed within the community, and now they're being exposed as a result of this pandemic. And so the question, of course, is how do we begin to sort of bring about a change? Some people are calling for um, you know, access to more medical doctors who are African-Americans and making sure that we're training enough, even though African-Americans make up 13% of the population or a little over 13% of the population, um, there are only about only about 5% of our doctors are African-American. And yet we know that we have significant African-Americans experience different, different outcomes when they have African-Americans. Um, whether or not African-Americans um, are being taken seriously when they go to hospitals is also a concern that we also have to address. And so I think for this particular moment, um, and particularly sort of the parallels with Sister Mary Anthony Duchemin, um, I think what is telling in this moment is that at her time, she, despite knowing that she was living in a slaveholding church in a slaveholding society, did not hesitate to go and serve her church and to serve anyone who was suffering from the ailment. Um, so that is the kind of spirit that has not been reflected um, in the American health care system and even within the Catholic health care system. 
if we go back, um, there is a very long and very painful history of discrimination in Catholic hospitals. We have documentations of African-Americans who were organized in the late 19th century complaining about hospitals led by sisters refusing to treat African-Americans. This continues well into the 20th century. And so in, in terms of just access period, and then let alone once you get into these spaces, how, how is Black pain, how is Black suffering being heard by individuals um, who may not have the same commitments to um, racial justice, or at the very least, the same commitments and uphold, or not committed as much to upholding uh, the values of the church and its core value that all lives matter. The reality is we do have a history where white Catholics have put race before faith um, time and time again, and we certainly see it in the healthcare system, but also in other aspects of church life. I'm going to get to education next, but you know, something from my own experience uh, talking with um, African-American friends who talk about if they have an elderly parent or an elderly grandparent who has to go to the hospital, um, they talk about how they have to structure their lives so that, that that elderly relative is never alone because they just don't trust that if the person's alone in the hospital that their care will be fully met. And I just think about that in contrast with you know, me as a, as a white person. And if I had someone elderly in the hospital or I, my, my mom has passed away from cancer years ago, but we wouldn't hesitate to necessarily leave them alone. And, and just that sense that that is the approach that they have to take. And that's today. That's not, you know, that's not, not 30 years ago. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Not even leaving people, I'm sorry to interrupt, but not even no, leaving please. people alone, but also identifying yourself, making, you know, if you're an African-American professional, there are the moments in which if you're having those encounters, you attempt to sort of read your resume very, you know, strategically to this medical health care professional, believing that perhaps, you know, their recognition of your, your class may, may at least sort of mitigate some of the, the challenges that you might face. Um, it's even just a question of, if we're, if, even if we're looking at sort of the maternal health care, sort of the, the maternal death rate among African-American women, sort of it's so high in this country. And it doesn't matter regardless of educational background, something is, is changed. And so the question, of course, is, you know, do we have to take a look at sort of medical education itself? Um, you know, how many medical schools require their students to pass to take a course on race, racism and medicine? How many of them have been required to read Harriet Washington's Medical Apartheid, which documents this very long and painful history of medical experimentation in the African-American community. It's not just simply that African-Americans have, um, have these unfounded um, suspicions about the medical um, field, but there is a long documented history beyond Tuskegee, right, of African-American patients not being taken seriously, being um, harmed under these circumstances in these spaces. And, you know, that's just one way in which and I really feel like the church could potentially lead, um, certainly if we're paying attention to the fact that Xavier University, the nation's only historically black and Catholic institution, is still responsible for producing the largest numbers of African-Americans uh, who go on to successfully graduate from medical school. And if the if everything of all the reports tell us that black people trust black doctors more and that black doctors have a better success rate in terms of whether it is um, ensuring that African-American children maybe survive, then that is where we invest, as well as making sure that everyone understands this history, that this is not an adversarial relationship that African-Americans have to the medical um, 
uh, to healthcare, but there is something deeper sort of rooted in this history of structural racism, not only within society, but within the healthcare system itself. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, just so powerful. And I think you, you made a comment about to bring about change and you're talking about the healthcare industry, but um, I want to talk about education now and specifically Catholic schools. Um, you wrote another piece about black history as Catholic history. And um, and so I want to get your views on how we're um, ad- addressing this in, in Catholic schools. And I should note that you're, uh, you're, uh, we're blessed to have you as part, uh, as one of our um, members of the Advisory Committee on Racial Justice that NCA has started. Um, and we're trying to really think about some of these bigger picture um uh, bigger pictures might be the wrong way to say it, but how do we educate within Catholic schools for young people today, recognizing the fact that that's where maybe some long-lasting change can really take place? And so when you think about that black history as Catholic history and like the Oblate Sisters of Providence and uh, educating um, students in schools about that, what are, what are some of the thoughts that come to your mind about, about how we can do that better? Right. Um, it's a wonderful question. Um, I think about education all the time because the Catholic Church, despite um, sort of its own culpability and direct complicity in America's original sin of racism and slavery, um, what we have to recognize is that the Catholic Church still has a strong reputation within the African-American community as it relates to education. Even though the numbers of African-American Catholics may be low, maybe I think they say that maybe it's 3% of Black Catholics um, our cap, um, 3% of African-Americans are Catholic, um, what we know is that significant numbers of African-Americans have been educated in Catholic schools, um, that the schools themselves served as the primary sites of evangelization. And within the African-American Catholic community, there was great investment in education within their community, that they believed that education was the way, um, was one core avenue which, which um, one could pursue racial justice. And so what is very significant when we think about education and we think about how our schools can become these vessels of of racial justice, one way to do that is to teach Black history and Black Catholic history in these institutions. Um, Prior to really the civil rights movement, and even to this day, um, the only Catholic institutions that were teaching Black and Black Catholic history um, were were schools led by the African-American sisterhoods. Um, It's important to remember that the Black sisterhoods, um, the Yavle Sisters of Providence in Baltimore, the Sisters of the Holy Family, founded in New Orleans in 1842, and then the third surviving community, um, there have been eight, but there's third, the third surviving community are the Franciscan Handmaids of Mary in New York. They were teaching this history and they understood that this would be significant. And even when these sisters began to desegregate the faculties of white schools in the 19, or predominantly white schools, Catholic schools in the 1950s and 1960s, they understand um, and they continue to teach black history because they understood that black history was not simply for black people, but it was everyone's history. So in the same way um, that there had been the slogan out, black history is American history, um, I began the hashtag black history is Catholic history because so much of the history of the church um, is black history. Um, if we look at early American Catholic history, the church was the first and largest corporate slaveholder in the Americas. Much of early American Catholic history is African-American history and so much of early African-American history is Catholic history. That this story does not start in 1619 in Virginia, but rather in, in the 1520s and then 1565 with the, the successful establishment of St. Augustine, Florida, um, St. Augustine in Florida. It means something 
um, if every Catholic understood that the first Christian marriage that takes place in the land area that becomes the United States is an interracial marriage, and it takes place in St. Augustine, Florida, between a free Black woman from Spain and a Spanish soldier, that that entire settlement is sort of founded with the labor of a free and enslaved Black people, that they are a part of this story, and a part of the story from the very beginning. Um, that the roots of Black Catholicism in what becomes the United States are older than the vast majority um, of white Catholics in the contemporary period, who most of whom trace their lineage to the middle of the 19th century when there is significant immigration into the United States from Europe. So for me, um, if the church is concerned with reparation, one critical way that we get to it is through historical truth telling um, to make sure that people understand that Black people and Black Catholics have never been marginal um, to the story of the American Catholic experience, that so much of our history is tied up into this institution of slavery, but also into the Black faithful who dared to make the church live up to its true social teaching. So for me, um, that is where uh, I believe that the church can make a significant impact specifically by teaching its own history. The first meeting we had, uh, we quoted the USCCB document, Open Wide Our Hearts, which was uh, produced um, on racism about two years ago. And that quote comes from Sister Catherine Drexel, who um, I think has been, you know, I think credited with founding Xavier University, the only historically black college university that's that's Catholic and, and other things. And you pointed out the fact that um, to meet an email after that, that her, her history is not pure either. And that it's just, I think it's really recognizing the fact that um, coming back to that uh, Chimamda uh, Nidice's, uh, Nidice's quote that we can't work through a single story and we can't somehow look at people in one lens that there is a, there is a variety of stories to tell. So just talk a little bit about Sister Catherine Drexel and maybe how that that can cl both cloud and, and enhance our view of, of history um, as far as our, our Catholic history? Absolutely. Um, certainly, St. Catherine Drexel is a name that many people know and certainly many Black Catholics know because of her and her community's um, deep investments in Black Catholic education. Um, we know that the great expansion of the Black Catholic educational infrastructure, but also the Paris infrastructure, was made possible uh, by Catherine Drexel, who was the foundress of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. Now, when that order is founded in 1891, the full title is the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament for Indians and Colored People, and that's sort of using the language of that time, so I put that in quotation marks. Um, but they were founded specifically to minister to the Native American and African American populations. Um, in fact, Catherine Drexel, um, who felt called to religious life, initially um, was only going to um, establish a ministry for Native Americans but her spiritual um, advisor uh, asked her to consider expanding her interest to the African-American community, um, which leads to um, her significant investments uh, in Black Catholic, in the Black Catholic educational infrastructure. Um, we know um, by the turn of the 20th century, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament are the largest community of sisters working in the African-American community, but they are also a community that will not accept African-Americans or Native American women. And the challenge right of that single story is what has always been said and has been promoted even by the community was that um, in the case of black women, the members, the leaders of the historically black orders asked mother Catherine not to accept black women so as to not draw women away from her ranks. That is what has always been said. 
oftentimes what has been added is that, of course, they worked in the, in the South where it was illegal in most instances for Black and white women to live together under the same roof. So that was a challenge. Um, but the fact remains is that the community actually took a vote in 1893. Um, we know that they'd actually taken a Native American woman, and some sources say that she may have also been of African descent um, in 1893. Um, and then a couple of months later, after they accepted that woman, a Black nun from Georgia who had founded a community and um, had come to ask for help and potentially to integrate into that community. And at that moment, the community takes a vote um, and they say that they will not accept her. Her name was Mother Matilda Beasley. She is described by the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament as a very saintly colored woman. I mean, that's a direct quote. And yet they did not want to live with her on equal terms. That racism was indeed the driving factor behind that. And so they reasoned because there were other black orders that they could just simply direct the black sisters to the black orders and they directed any other Native American applicants to white communities. Um, and then finally, when they decide to accept African-American women uh, in the late 1940s, they take up another vote in 1949. It's not, um, it's driven by a sort of pressure from white priests um, who were asking the sisters because other communities are beginning to open up. And they take a vote and they say yes, but they only at the, at the beginning only accept two at a time so as to not prevent a black majority. In their schools, we also have very doc, clear documented examples of sisters holding anti-black attitudes. They did not teach black history in their institutions until the civil rights movement. So it's a complicated story. Um, certainly one would never deny sort of the realities um, and sort of the great work that was done as a result of the great expansion of the Black Catholic uh, educational infrastructure, a lot of which was funded by Catherine Drexel, whose father um, uh, left her a significant trust. And so she had the funds to be able to do so. At the same time, I think the danger of the single story, obviously, is that um, because she is the patron saint of racial justice, um, there are some misconceptions that she was the founder of the African-American apostolate, that she founded the first black schools, uh, for Catholic schools for African-Americans. And that's just simply not true. That that begins with the historically black orders, the Yahweh Sisters of Providence, the Sisters of the Holy Family, but also a lot of unsung black lay women who were actually founding these schools, many of some, several of whom, several of which were taken over by Catherine Drexel um, when, her, when she is founded, but it's important uh, to remember. The Oblates are founded in 1828, the Holy Family Sisters are founded in 1842, and there are a host of Black Catholic schools that have been founded by lay women long before Catherine Drexel is encouraged to expand her vision to include African-Americans. And so um, when we talk about um, that story, it's important to understand that the founders of that apostolate those members of the faithful who understood that racism was an evil, right? It comes from the African-American community and specifically African-American um, faithful, many of whom were called to religious life, but for whatever reason could not go into communities. And then finally, those who could go into communities. So I think it's just an important, for me, it is important to be very clear, um, to be completely honest, to tell the whole story. Um, without um, ignoring or discounting the significance of Catherine Drexel, but also being very honest. Um, her commitments to racial justice did not extend into religious life. And, we, and that matters um, because that also helps us to begin to understand some of the challenges that African-Americans who were educated in SBS schools um, have begun to document and have, have always documented um, about the challenges that they faced. Yeah, it is that that importance of just having 
the multiple stories, right? And understanding people played um, important roles, but not complete roles. And, and how we talk about that is just what I want to close on a little bit. And I want to talk about the church as a whole, um, thinking Catholic schools specifically, obviously, too. You have a quote in uh, your America article, um, the history of black nuns and black Catholics generally is littered with gut-wrenching experience of anti-black racism and discrimination within the church. And then you talk about the uh, healthcare system as well, but, but we can kind of just stop it almost at the church. And coming back to Sister Mary Anthony uh, Jushiman um, and Archbishop Whitfield, uh, he was an ardent racist to his death. And, um, and obviously, talk about, you know, he didn't leave her anything in the will. He did um, all these different things. Why? Maybe um, the why I think we get, but it's so important to really understand this history um, so we can be better today. And so maybe just talk a little bit about why that's so important, that understanding that this is part of, of our church today, that we have to really understand in order if we're going to uh, confront it and deal with it and move on to be a better and more just society and a better and more just church. I mean, I think the story... You know, I wouldn't sort of, I guess I'm always sort of hesitant to say, you know, we're sort of casting it on one individual without sort of really reckoning with the, with the fact that the church itself was a slaveholding institution. That in itself is sort of, should give us the great pause. Um, and what does it mean that the Catholic church was not only the first and largest corporate slaveholder in the Americas and the largest in many instances throughout sort of early American history, the largest slaveholder in Florida, Louisiana, Kentucky, um, Missouri and Maryland, but that indeed the church was deeply implicated in the trade itself, that the church passed a series of papal bulls that sanctioned the rise of the transatlantic slave trade, that sanctioned the perpetual enslavement of Africans and Native Americans, that sanctioned the seizure of their lands, of these quote-unquote pagan lands. Um, you know, even beyond Duchemin, I oftentimes, when I teach the history of the transatlantic slave trade, one of the first things that I do when I show images of Elmina Slave Castle, which is one of the slave castles um, that is still um, standing, that is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, that receives 10, 000, tens of thousands of visitors every year. Um, when you go to that massive site, um, which is which was constructed by the Portuguese, and then it switches hands a couple of times, but at the center of that structure, is the chapel where a priest and where the soldiers and the slavers and the traders, you know, went to daily mass and it's built right on top of the slave dungeons where literally tens of thousands of people passed and died under, that the church is deeply implicated, deeply involved in this. And so for me, um, it's not that Whitfield, um, despite the fact that this black nun gave her life, serving him, saved his life, it's not that he, at the end, did not leave, uh, only decided to only leave the Oblate Sisters of Providence, you know, the, the smallest of inheritances. That's not uncommon if we sort of look at a church where the sisters themselves, um, they are sort of living in a slave society, that the Sisters of Charity, they're a slave holding, or thinking about an early Oblate Sister of Providence, uh, Sister Mary Aloysius Beecraft, Anne Marie Beecraft, who has just recently had a building named after her at Georgetown. When she founds her Catholic school for black girls in Washington, D.C., in the Georgetown community, um, and then it sort of moved and it becomes the state academy, it's located directly across the street from the visitation convent where over 80 enslaved people 
men, women, and children are laboring. And it's right around the corner from the Jesuits, Georgetown College, where over 200 enslaved men, women, and children are laboring. Um, that this is the society, that is the story of the church. If we're looking at early church buildings, understanding that these are often built, particularly if they're in the South, built by enslaved labor or also built and funded by the sale of enslaved people. Um, and so for me, we have to recognize these stories as not anomalous, but as the story of the American Catholic experience. I will continue to say uh, they force us to reckon with the fact that the church was never an innocent bystander in these histories of colonialism, slavery, and segregation. And if we want to be better, we have to follow the lead, I would say, of Black Catholics, who despite all of this, still remain faithful. I think the best example that I can leave you with um, actually sort of comes from a, form, uh, a former slave who was owned by the Jesuits um, uh, in Kentucky, um, Daniel Arthur Rudd, who was the founder of the what was then the Colored Catholic Congress movement is now the Black Catholic Congress movement, who despite, um, who believed that despite the church's failures during slavery and its embrace of segregation, still believed that the Catholic church alone could break the color line. And in, 18, in the 1890s, he called upon Black Catholics to help their church do it, to sort of be the moral compass, to be the moral leadership when it was not, and when it could not be found in those who were committed to um, slavery and then later segregation. And I think that that's telling for us, right? To be the better Catholic, to be true to the church, that if indeed all lives matter, then make sure that the church recognizes that indeed all lives matter. And that means that black lives matter. And so for me, um, it is the potential that leaves me hopeful in this moment, um, that we remember that we have a tradition within our own community of black Catholics who in the face of unholy discrimination still remain faithful, still fought to make the church truly Catholic. And I think that that is what their story is. That is the great gift that they can give to us at this contemporary moment, in this moment. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Shannon D. Williams, you are a powerful voice, uh, especially for this time. Um, and uh, we'll continue to keep you in our prayers. I think the what you've really uh, led us through today, which is just a snapshot of your work, obviously, is um, is is the type of history that we have to all wrestle with as Catholics. And I think if people feel uncomfortable hearing it, or if they feel you know it's painful, or those are things we all have to go through in order to confront it, so that we can um, understand it uh, and obviously uh, move forward in a better, more constructive way for our society and for our church. And so thank you so much for uh, being a guest today. And again, just uh, our prayers for your continued great work there. Thank you so much for having me. Blessings to you. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Dr. Shannon D. Williams, assistant professor at Villanova University. Uh, and that is this week's NCEA podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. God bless. <laughs>